you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 1 today as we continue our series called Fear Not, and this week we dig into the word joy. I hope this morning finds you doing well and full of joy. Uh, This is a season, Christmas, that is marked by the word joy. We have uh, the big stands outside of our front doors, and we see it on coffee cups and everything all over the place, the word joy. But if you're anything like me, you get a little bit of a chuckle as you look around the world and see a whole lot of emotions and sometimes anything but joy. Maybe you see frustration, maybe you see anger, maybe anxiety. Now we know, we see grief, many things, but not joy. I mean, let's just all be honest with each other. Walmart in December is not a joyful place. Even the blessed Target has lost a little bit of its luster in December. And I think we all really kind of catch the why of this. I think we know that there is a deep-rooted misunderstanding of what joy really is and where it really grows. But it's not like we don't want to know. The world wants to know. The the world around us, even outside of the church, wants to know what real joy is. Listen to this quote by the Irish playwright George Bernard Shaw. He says, this is the true joy in life, the being used for a purpose recognized by yourself as a mighty one, the being thoroughly worn out before you are thrown on the scrap heap and being a force of nature instead of a feverish, selfish little clod of ailments and grievances, complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy. Oof, that hurts a little bit. Now, I think Shaw is onto something, but I think he's also missing something deep and important there. But we can at the very least acknowledge that there is a longing in his words for a deeper sense of joy, something greater than the short-lived happiness found in love and devotion to the things of this world. If you've been around the church, very long, if you've walked through a holiday season in the church, you probably know where we are going, but I want us to be careful not to make the assumption that we know. Because even good, well-intentioned church folk have a tendency to miss the mark when we talk about joy, and sometimes we can accidentally talk about something closer to a delayed happiness instead of real joy. But my hope is, as we dig into our passage today, we see something deeper that God has for all of us as we talk about joy. So if you have your text, you're open to Luke chapter one. Would you follow with me as we read just a few verses here, starting in verse 26? In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, 
for you have found favor with God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. The blessing it is, the story of life that we see here. God, I pray that as we open your word, God, it would open up our hearts and it would take root there. And we love you and we thank you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So we... We're all probably fairly aware of the start of this story. We have Mary, we have Joseph, and they are betrothed to be married. We know that if we've, again, hung around a little bit, we know that betrothal is not engagement, right? We can't just say, oh, well, they're going to get married one day. But rather, betrothal is a legally binding contract, if you will. There is nothing that can break a betrothal, even though Mary and Joseph have not walked through the wedding day or the wedding night. There is nothing that can break this bond outside of a divorce for the ground, on the grounds of adultery or infidelity. Mary and Joseph, we know, are peasants. They are growing up in a backwater town called Nazareth. The Bible tells us several places. Can anything good come from Nazareth? It was a saying that they had. How in the world could anything possibly good come from that place? Nothing is good there. And this is where Mary and Joseph live. Joseph is a tradesman. He's a worker. He is a carpenter who is probably looking forward to the day soon that he will be married to Mary, honestly speaking, and I don't say this flippantly, but they're nobodies. I mean, in the, in the cosmic scheme of things, Mary and Joseph have a very small amount at this point of significance. It's a little bit of a different beginning to the story, I think, that Luke is telling here than what we saw last week. I mean, at the very least, we could say Zechariah was serving in the temple. He was a priest. He was hopefully bringing people closer to worship to God. This is not Mary and Joseph. This is not Mary. She is a girl of low standing. She is not married yet. And in spite of all of that, we have this amazing greeting from the angel. The angel shows up speaking to a nobody and says, greetings, O favored one. The word favored is pretty important. It does not mean that Mary has done something of great value. That word favored does not point to the one who is being favored, but rather as the one who is doing the favoring. Mary isn't favored because she was the best student in Sunday school growing up. Mary is not favored because she got first place at the Bible drill. Mary is not favored because she is royalty. Mary is not favored because she has any great amount of influence. Mary is favored because God loves her. Church, this is something that we need to hear, and it will be important for us as we walk away today that God doesn't choose any person because of the quality in that person. You are not more qualified to follow God because there is any amount of spiritual accomplishment in your life, and you are not least qualified to follow God because of any spiritual failure in your life. That's why I love reading scripture. That's why I love the story of the Bible, because it is so honest and full of people who should not be chosen. Let's 
just be honest with ourselves, if you and I were writing the story, we would not choose the people who were chosen. We would not choose murderers. We would not choose prostitutes. We would not choose people who betray their own and steal their money from them. We would not choose people who have enormous anger issues. We would not choose people who hated other people simply because of how they looked or where they were born. Yet these are the people that God chooses. Not because of who they are, but because of who God is. For his purposes, for his design, and for his glory alone, God chooses Mary. And Mary gets it. And that is the start of why she is terrified. The angel shows up, and and it was a a wonderful description last week of why when an angel shows up, it's not a, ooh, this is amazing. Right? These are not fun little fluffy babies with harps. These are not cute little things with wings. These are terrifying soldiers of the almighty God. When they show up later to the shepherds, they're called a host. They're called an army. There's reason for fear, and it should be important to us that this incredibly terrifying vision of an angel is not what terrifies Mary. That's not what she is afraid of. What's she say? But she, Mary, was greatly troubled, not at the angel, She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what kind of greeting this might be. Why in the world is this angel saying, I am favored by God? Why is the angel looking at me? In the grand scheme of things, knowing the history of Israel the way that I I do, Mary might say, what in the world is about to happen for one who is favored by God? She knew who she was. She knew she had not earned any favor from God and she was afraid. Anybody in this room who has given serious thought to the implications of Matthew chapter 16 has probably felt a little bit of that same fear where in verse 24, it says, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. There are consequences to following our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a terrifying thing. When we stop and think, God, what might I lose to follow you? What might be in store for me as I follow you? It can be scary. How could you not have a little bit of fear when you hear this or when someone says that God has looked on you with favor? But I want us to understand it's that same statement that gave Mary fear that begins to give her peace. She was greatly troubled. She tried to figure out what kind of greeting this is. And the angel then said to her, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Has anybody ever been not so comforted when somebody says something to you, you're a little bit troubled, and then they just say it again. Like, that doesn't make me feel any better. But that's what the angel does. Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. 
But the angel goes on and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Of his kingdom there will be no end. And there is something amazing about that response where the Lord through the angel speaks to Mary and says, no, 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 this is a good thing. You are highly favored. And through you, I am about to do something amazing. And Mary certainly reacts to that in a very specific way. And there is is something we need to see here where she then says, okay, okay, you're going to do something Big And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? If we're not careful, we might hear Mary asking the same thing that Zechariah asked, we talked about last week. Where Zechariah, if you look over in chapter uh, or verse 18, it says, and Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? We're not careful, they sound a lot alike, but there's something fundamentally different about this. You see, Zechariah looked at the angel and said, how in the world can I believe you? I'm old, my wife's old. Is this really gonna happen? You see, in Zechariah's question, there was doubt. There was fear that these things couldn't be, and then it would be all for nothing. And we see what happened there, but that's not what Mary does. Mary's question does not have that same doubt in it. Mary doesn't say, how can I believe you? Mary says, how are you going to do it? You see, in Mary's question, there is faith. She doesn't know the means. I mean, the question could have been asked. I mean, I know basic biology. I know there's no stork. So how are you going to do these things? How are these things going to happen? I'm, I, I, I get it. You're God. You're powerful. Like you, you're the angel. You're the representative. God's going to make these things happen. How? See, Mary's question is a question of faith. Please tell me more. Zechariah's was a question of doubt. And so the angel looks at Mary. He sees her faith and he responds to that. And he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. I know, Mary, you're not going to catch all of this. I know this is going to be crazy. I know that it's not going to make sense to you, but God is going to do it. There's a lot of times in our lives where God will do something that just makes no sense. That's why the psalmist says, hey, his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. You're not going to catch it all the time. The angel tells Mary, God's going to do this. God has this covered. And, and there's a response from Mary, and this is kind of where I want to settle for the rest of our time, because Mary's response tells us and, and gives to us the heart that is on display that needs to exist within us. What is Mary going to do with this new information? Look at verse 38. And Mary said... Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed. The angel said, there is nothing that is impossible with God. 
God can make all of this happen. And Mary says, okay, let's do it. This is an amazing response of obedience and trust. It puts on display for us in Mary the heart that ought to be present in all of us. I am your servant, do what you want. And I I don't want us to jump into this with some assumption that just because there was an angel standing there in front of her, it made it any easier to say. Because I, I can't, I don't believe that Mary said this devoid of an understanding of what this might mean for the rest of her life. She is not unaware that there might be some long-lasting implications. She is a young girl who is not married, who has just been told she's going to have a baby. She knows what that means socially for her. She knows that that could mean a life of ridicule and rejection. She knows that there's a good chance that the person she loves will now divorce her before they can ever get married. And she knows that that means there might be a life of solitude and poverty because of the choice she made to follow God. She knows that there might be consequences. And in the face of those consequences, she says, yes, let it be. That word, that phrase right there, let it be, it, it, it should remind us of something important. Somewhere else in scripture where it was said, let it, or let there, specifically the creation Story. We are, are drawn back in time to where God said before anything was made, let there be. Let there be light. Let there be trees. Let there be birds. Let there be seas. Let there be fish. Let there be stars. Let there be all the things that there are. And Genesis tells us that when God said, let it be, it was good. And so Mary says, Let it be. This is good. She knows that what God is about to do, that his plan and his will is not only good, but it is for her good. This is a heart that says, I willingly hand over the rule and the reign of my life to you, God, because what you are going to do is good. It is a heart that has gladly said yes to the plan of God. And here we see two very big, very important things that affect the way that we live our life. Mary's response reminds us of two things. First is this. Fear keeps us from taking part in the call and the mission and the worship of God. You see, so many of us let fear take control And so we won't take part in these things. We're so afraid of what God might do or what God might call us to do that we won't even stop and listen. We won't even ask the question, God, what is your plan for my life? Because we are afraid of not being in control. We are afraid of what God might call us to sacrifice. We are afraid of what God might call us to do, and so we won't listen. Some of us know that call. Some of us have heard that call to go into our neighborhoods or our workplaces, to walk across the street to the person 
who lives across from us. We know that call, but the mission gives us fear. And so we allow the fear of what God has called us to do to keep us from taking part in what he has given us to do. We won't be a part of the mission because fear keeps us from that. And when that happens, when fear keeps us from the call or keeps us from the mission, then we fail to be a part of the worship of God. C.S. Lewis called it a, a holiday at sea. We are so easily satisfied with the stuff in front of us that, that we will happily play in the, the mud pies of the slums as opposed to take a vacation to the beach because we're afraid. We're afraid of what he might call us to do. Elsewhere, he said it this way. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. It is frustrating to have a new, discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then have to keep it silent because the people with you care for it no more than a tin can in a ditch. To hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall know then that these are the same thing fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. See, God has called us to a deep joy, but fear keeps us from being a part of the avenue in our life that God has designed to put joy into our lives. In fear, we won't stop and listen to what God is calling us to do. In fear, we won't be a part of the mission that he has given us to do. And then we can't worship and we can't do those things apart from each other. We can't sit and worship apart from hearing the call of God and being a part of the mission of God. It doesn't work that way. Those things are un, uh, inextricably connected to each other. They cannot be pulled Apart. When you hear the call of God and live on mission for God, there you worship God. And where all three of these things exist, there is joy. But I want us to understand that doesn't mean in that place we are free from fear. We have simply chosen to not let it master us. And there is the second lesson that we learn. Joy is found in obedience and service. Fear does not flee simply because we decide not to obey it and instead to obey God, but joy shows up in the midst of that fear. Fear doesn't leave just because we stop and take a deep breath. And joy honestly doesn't necessarily ask it to. But what we learn is that when we put ourselves to the task of listening to the call of God, of being on mission for God, and when we put ourselves to this task of serving God and serving other people, joy leaves no room for fear. It simply washes it away. 
You may be or may not be familiar with the story of a man named Dick Hoyt. Dick Hoyt was uh, a man who became famous uh, for his running, uh, and particularly the way that his running was an act of service. Dick Hoyt uh, had a son. His son's name was Rick. Rick was born uh, a quadriplegic and born with cerebral palsy. That means he couldn't move under his own power, couldn't communicate very well until some uh, a school created a system of communication. But Rick was full of a desire to motivate other people and a love to do so. And so Rick one day heard of a college athlete who had had an accident and had become paralyzed. So Rick communicated to his father that he wanted to do something to show this athlete that there was life beyond his accident. And so he asked his dad, he said, can you please enter me in to a five mile benefit run that will go to support this athlete? Now, obviously, being quadriplegic and having cerebral palsy, there's no way that Rick could actually complete this. So Dick put him in the wheelchair, signed up for the race, and pushed his son five miles to complete the race. And that in and of itself is an amazing act of motivation. But oh my word, it is just the beginning of the story. Nearly 50 years later, the Hoyt team has completed over a thousand races, including 32 Boston marathons and six Ironman races. I want you to catch that. Dick took his son Rick and put him in a wheelchair and completed a thousand races that he could never help with. Rick never had the ability. His fastest Boston Marathon time was just under two hours and 48 minutes. He cut my time in half and he was pushing his son in a wheelchair. He, he finished in first place in his division. He ran six Ironmen, which means at one point he had his son in a raft tied to his waist and he was swimming, pulling his son. Now, I've seen a lot of interviews with this man and... And I can tell you one thing, he is at times exhausted, he is worn ragged, but as a father looking at another father, I can tell you this, there is nothing but joy in the way that that man served his son. This service was memorialized, sadly, this year in March, Dick passed away at the age of 80, and the Boston Marathon saw this act of service and the joy that was present there, and they memorialized Dick with a statue of Dick and Rick at the starting line of the Boston Marathon because he found joy in serving his son. Y'all, joy is not found in getting rid of fear. Joy is not found in getting all of the things that we want. Joy is not found in all of life's circumstances lining up for us the way that we would like them to line up. Joy is found in the submissive obedience to the call and the mission of God that leads to worship of God. When we obediently and sacrificially serve God and serve the people he loves, those people around us, our family, our church, our neighborhoods, our communities, our cities, our world, there is where we find joy. And I, I don't want you to take my word for it. I don't want you to just 
take it that it's true because I'm standing up here saying it. I want you to hear it from the text of scripture because Mary absolutely understood this. Look at verse 46. This is a, a passage of scripture that is, is famous. It's called Mary's Song of Praise or the Magnificat. And it's Mary responding to what God is about to do. Verse 46 says, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of a servant. For behold, now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. Mary got it. She understood it. She served God and she says that for generations people will call me blessed. Because I said yes. She had the joyful heart of a servant. And in saying yes to God, she found a joy in service that this world could not offer her. That nothing in this world could give her and nothing in this world could sustain for her. Only in saying yes in obedience and trust to God did she find true, real joy. So what does that, does that mean for us? When, when I talk to students upstairs, I, I often get to the end and I say, okay, so what, what do we do with this? You see, the call of God or, or the text of Scripture always calls us to respond and doesn't give us the option to just walk away having heard it and say, yeah, that's nice. But we have to respond to what God is doing. So what do we do with this text today? What do we do when we walk out those doors? How do we allow this to change our lives? And I think there's three questions that we can ask that might help you see how God would call you to respond this morning. And the first is this. Have you listened to the call of God? Have you stopped and asked God to share with you what he would do with your life? That is first a call to repentance and faith, a call to abandon your sin for Christ and his work on the cross, to follow in obedience to him. But that is also a call to be a servant. Have you listened to the call of God? Second question. Have you made the decision to live on mission for God regardless of what the consequences that might be, might be brought upon your daily life? Mary knew that there could be consequences. We know that following God leads to a change or leads to a changed life. Are we willing to say yes, regardless of what the consequences might be? Have you made the decision to live on mission for God, regardless of the consequences? And question number three, do you actively choose to worship God every day? Through reading of his word, through prayer, through moments where you stop and give to him praise and adoration. Do you actively choose to worship God daily? I think when we ask ourselves these questions, it'll be pretty clear what God is going to do and how God is calling us to respond to his word. 
Will you pray with me? Father, you are a good and holy and just God. Your word is a gift to us. God, in your word, we see a deep call to joy. God, a joy that is not found in circumstances, a joy that is not found in getting the things that we want, but rather true joy is found in sacrificially, obediently trusting you and being a servant. God, I know that in this room there are there are people who need to respond in all the ways that we had just talked about. God, that there is someone in this room who, for the first time, they need to stop and say, you know, I haven't listened to the call of God in my life. I haven't sought out his grace. I'm still struggling with my sin. I'm still wrapping myself around what the world has to offer and I haven't given myself to what God has for me. So God, maybe for the first time today, they need to say, God, I'm sorry for my sin. I repent of it. I turn from it and I turn in faith to you. And I know that there are some who maybe for the first time since following you, they need to stop and say, God, what do you have for me? What is your call on my life? Where would you have me to go with your gospel? Maybe they've been in a place of fear and so they won't listen, but God, today they're, they're seeing your spirit draw them in boldness to ask the question, what will you do through me? I give them boldness to hear that call. There are some who know, God, they, they know the people in their lives who don't know the gospel, who haven't seen that. They know the people who are without hope, but they're afraid. They're afraid of the consequences of living on mission. They're afraid of what it might mean for their daily lives if they follow. God, give them the promise of your goodness. Word tells us that there is nothing impossible with you and that your plan is good and it is for our good. Help them to respond. Help us to live lives daily that worship you, that are obedient to you, God, that pull all of these things together and put on display a joy that the world is desperately longing to see, God. They don't want temporary happiness. They don't want a fleeting sensation of nicety. They want true joy that is only found in a relationship with your son, Jesus. God, I pray this morning that we would all walk one step closer to Jesus. With your head still bowed and eyes still closed, God calls us to respond, and this is a moment where you can do that. And there are several ways that you can respond. In a moment, you'll be able to see those. Maybe your response is just to come and kneel at the altar and say, God, I'm done with my fear. I'm no longer going to allow it to control me, but rather I'm going to trust and obey you. And you need to get before God at the altar. Maybe 
you need to speak to somebody. Andrew will be up here. I'll be up here in the front row. You can come speak to one of us. And you might need to say, for the first time today, I know that I need to trust Christ. I've been living in fear, and so I haven't trusted him. And today I need to be done with that life. And so I'm going to trust him today. And we want to celebrate that with you. Maybe the response is just a moment where you praise God for all that he has done. And with an open heart, you say, God, I'm going to give it all to you because of who you are and the way that you call me to live. And this is a moment where we can worship together the good and holy God. My prayer is that however God is calling you to respond, you would not allow this moment to slip past without doing what he is calling you to do. Father, we love you. Give us boldness to respond and to worship you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.